Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Sadanto Suchedo Ye Lahudi Sanmiya Sanputoshi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Uh, it's now the 26th of March, and we're here in Berkeley, California. We're going to be lecturing on the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Avatamsaka, Dafang Guangfo Hua Yanjing, and we're lecturing on a chapter called the Ten Grounds chapter, the Ten Stages. So, before we begin, we're going to invoke the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, the uh, uh, sages of the Avatamsaka Assembly. You'll find the name here on the front cover of your text, so grab that cover and we'll recite together.
Please turn to page 20, 21. We're down on the next to last paragraph. So that would be paragraph one, two, three, four. He makes the following reflection, saying, in the Chinese, we're going to start with the Chinese, which is on page 20. And again, it's the uh, second paragraph up. It's 做事念念. We're going to start right there. I'm going to put my palms together. People are welcome to do that if you care to, if that's comfortable. Wo ying ling bi Chu Yu Chang Jian Xing Chan Shi Dao Okay over to the right, page twenty one. He makes the following reflection saying Living beings are pitiful. They fall into wrong views. Evil wisdom, evil desires. And the thick forest of the evil destinies. I should teach them to stay in proper views and cultivate the true and actual way. Let's let's work on that paragraph a little bit. Um, I'll say at the start that this one is not yet. This is not Sutra 2.0 yet. This is still the initial offering. If it was software, it's the first, it's still a 1.0 generation. We can improve it. We're in the process of improving it, which is to say, this was first translated. What we're looking at was translated in the 80s. And since then, we've improved our translation skills and also our sense of the need to make it real English. So what I'm keying on right away is I'm sure people are going to pick up on the word evil because evil is a powerful word in English, especially when it's applied to religion or to uh, viewpoints, cultural viewpoints. And if we say something is evil, that implies that there must be something, that there's definitely judgment there. And we don't usually think of things like views, and wisdom as being evil. So I just want to flag those words and say we're going to 
redo that to avoid all the problems involved in such judgmental language. In Chinese, it's so that word uh, repeats three times. And uh, here, why was it translated as evil in the beginning? It's because in the dictionary, if you crack open Matthew's Chinese-English dictionary, you'll find evil as the first choice for the word uh in, in Chinese. Um, here, what it means, a more effective translation here would be something like harmful. Um, unwise, unskillful would be a better choice for that, that word here. So he says, who is talking? This is a bodhisattva. He's a generic bodhisattva. He's our model bodhisattva. And the idea is that if we aspire to live like this, if we want to become as compassionate, as connected, as far-seeing as a bodhisattva, then this is our model. It's our role model. We can imitate this perspective. The sutra is nice because it takes us into the bodhisattva's heart. It's as if it opens a window in the bodhisattva's heart and says, here's what a bodhisattva thinks. This is really a genuine avatamsaka bodhisattva's perspective. This is how they think and feel. So that's very helpful. And let me point out that this is not philosophy. This is much closer to psychology, but it's more than psychology because it's psychology can often, if it's Jungian, Freudian kind of language, you think of psychology as something passive, that these thoughts are inborn or kind of uh, trained from childhood. In fact, a bodhisattva, the, the Avatamsaka gives us a view into the bodhisattva's heart these are thoughts that are immediately translated into action. These are um, thoughts that move from a heart of compassion, harmlessness, and connection. Okay, does that help? So let's take a look. The Bodhisattva makes the following reflection, that is to say, thinks, reflects. Hmm, he says, she says, hmm. You know what, says the Bodhisattva, living beings are pitiful. How sad. Pity is from the point of view of somebody who is already past suffering. Suffering caused from not knowing. Right? Bodhisattva is not there anymore. Bodhisattva is able to put an end to his own or her own suffering. So he looks at these other people, and not just humans, this living beings includes all kinds of creatures, says they are kumin. They're really, they, they evoke in me a sense of pity, of sympathy, a sense of how sad. Look at these sad living beings. Why? Why does he look at them that way? What do they do? They The verb here is fall. They fall down. This is to, um There's definitely a sense of hitting the ground, that kind of falling. But it's, it's even more, it's like downfall falling. It's the fall of 
um, descent used to be higher, maybe even spiritually higher, maybe even evolutionarily higher. There used to be a higher status. Now things have gotten bad for these living beings, and they have fallen. And the things he's pointing to are all um, views, wisdom, and desires are all internal events. It means they've had a, um, they've had a come down from where they used to be to where they are now in their jian, their views. How do you fall in your views? That's an interesting idea. You might say they used to understand, now they don't understand. They used to see their way clear of problems, now they don't anymore. Something comes up, they're totally turned by it. They used to be fairly uh, free and easy, not, mm, not attached, not confused. Now they're totally confused by the things that, uh, that come to their awareness. So that would be to fall into xie jian. It's even more specific here. Xie <coughs> jian refers to things like um, cause and effect. That's the first one that always comes up when it's right views or wrong views. If a bodhisattva, if, if a living being um, falls away from right perspectives into wrong perspectives, that would mean, for example, somebody who disbelieves in cause and effect always blames others for what goes wrong. Never takes responsibility for the things that go wrong. Not my fault. This, nothing, I didn't do this. I have nothing to do with the argument, with the fight. I had nothing to do with the going to war, for example. It's not my fault. Somebody else must have done that. Wrong view. Proper view says, let's see, in my mind, if I really think that, what, what do I think? What is my part in this? I understand that we're all connected, so... Where were my thoughts before this happened? Somebody who has what are called zheng jian, the, down in the, the uh, second line, I'm going to cause those beings to zhu, to stay in right views. That's somebody who, whenever something happens, first thing they do is look at where their mind was. Where was my mind? Where were my thoughts when that happened? If you can do that over time, you've actually empowered yourself to change. The ability to reflect, to check on my thoughts is the first step towards creating the kind of life that I want to live. So, xie jian is always putting the blame outside. Wrong views always looks for someone else, some other mover, some other motivator. 
Now, this gets interesting if you're a theologian. If you like to talk about God, there's a problem here. Um, If you're part of the 90% of the human race that follows theistic views. If you say, who made me? God made me. God's will. It must be in his plan or her plan that this works out this way. That would fit our definition of Shijin, wrong view. So this is an interesting uh, perspective, and it's one you have to tread carefully when you're doing interfaith dialogue. In uh, the class that I teach on Buddhist-Christian dialogue, one of the first things we do in our class is lay out on the table at the start what we call sticking points, places where there's not going to be compromised. Places that are just different, and there are. It's, it's inaccurate and unrealistic to say, oh, all religions lead to the same place. Mm, okay? What we do is we say, you know what? Here's a place that Buddhists have an issue with, which is the idea of a creator deity. And instead of a creator deity, the Buddhists say, It's not that things are uncaused. It's not that things are random. It's not that things happen by luck or by chance. And it's also not the case that things happen because one intelligence has got it like a supercomputer all figured out. All those ideas are not the case, says the Buddha. Buddha says, what happens? Well, he said, the mind moves and you plant seeds. When you plant seeds, the seeds sprout. You get fruit. You get harvest. You get crops from seeds. If you didn't have the thought, it certainly wouldn't happen. Master Hua would give us this line. He would say, Nian dong, bai shi you. Nian jing, wan wu. Wu? That's not exactly how I would say it. I would just get scolded just now for quoting it wrong. He would say, the mind moves and all things come into being. If the mind is still, the myriad phenomena don't happen. So a meditator is looking to check where my mind moved. If you can catch your mind moving, if I can catch my mind moving, I have a chance of changing the world I live in. So that list that I came up with, right, Something happened. Was it luck? Mm. Meaning what? Meaning roll the dice. Sometimes it's this way, sometimes it's that way. Random. Mm, Not. Was it fate? That's just the way it is. Can't change it. Always been that way. It's happening outside me. And some engine, some power is making things work out. It's fate. Can't change it. The Buddha would say, "Eh, try again. Is it random? Like probability? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Nobody's in charge? Not. Is it all in some external intelligence? 
There is a supercomputer mind that knows in advance how it's going to be and makes a decision, and then things work out. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he shelters me, says the song. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he shelters me. Right? Well, okay, his mind might be on the sparrow, but he's, this, did he make that earthquake and tsunami happen? Well, if it's all, you know, that's, that's a sad, for, for theistic, that's the big side of the barn, right, that you can shoot at and hit every single time, which is, gee, if it's all in the mind of God, how come babies die of crib syndrome, right, sudden infant death syndrome? God has a funny sense of humor, if that gets him off, you know. So that's a weak point, for, and it's not fair to hit that one because people who believe in the mind of God, the will of God, do so with great joy. And it is indeed a relief to be able to say, somebody's in charge, God's in charge. Just let go and let God. Remember that bumper sticker back in the... 70s, let go and let God, meaning it's all taken care of. Okay, what if you're a murderer? It's God's will, you know, that I pulled the trigger. Mm. So, these are, this is, I'm saying, a theological argument that's been going on forever and forever. The Buddha said, all of those choices for why stuff happens that's all xie jin, crooked views, wrong views. What is the proper view, says the Buddha? Proper view is ru shi yin, ru shi guo. As is the seed, so is the fruit. If you don't plant potatoes, you certainly don't harvest potatoes. If you plant potatoes, you don't harvest carrots. If you don't plant, you're going to go hungry at harvest time. No seeds, no fruit. No potatoes, no tomatoes, no carrots. That, says the Buddha, is the proper view. That everything in the world comes about because people can't be still. The challenge for the meditator... So if you follow this way of thinking, this, we're talking about crooked, xie, jian, and straight, proper, zheng, jian. When you follow this line of logic, what it means is that if I can be still, if I can really be patient and not plant seeds of greed, anger, delusion, pride, doubt, and all the things that that move me ordinarily, if I can be really still and not plant those things with my words, my deeds, and my thoughts, when it comes harvest time, no karma. No negative karma. Furthermore, if you understand how this works and you plant good seeds, you say, yeah, I understand. I could slip through and have like zero on my scorecard, no evil on my scorecard. What about if I deliberately go and do all kinds of good deeds on behalf of others? That's called a bodhisattva, somebody who uses cause and effect skillfully to benefit others. Is your balancing the, the, the budget, the debit, and the credit towards the good. So, this is the idea of zheng jian and xie jian, right views and wrong views, proper views and improper views. 
Um, cause and effect, says the Buddha, it's the way it is. That's a law of the universe that he didn't make up. This is not Buddha registered trademark, circle R. This is something the Buddha woke up to. He said, this is how it is. Cause and effect is really, really true. So use it well. Okay, living beings, says the sutra, do what? They're sad. They fall into wrong views. They're always told that if you get away with it, if you're quicker, then there's no blame. There's no fault. In the end, you don't have to pay the price if you're smarter, faster, quicker, meaner, badder, right? So that's how Hollywood would have us believe in TV. Evil wisdom. What is evil wisdom? Bad translation, first of all. Probably would be harmful wisdom. Wisdom that teaches us that selfishness is the best way to live. Evil wisdom, harmful wisdom, would be wisdom that says, uh, probably we could say, you know, that, that might be an oxymoron. That is to say, if it's harmful, how could it be wisdom? Um, you might say um, it's harmful attitudes. For example, there was a time in the last 10 years when America pursued a policy of torture. Overt, explicit, out there as a way of fighting a war on terror. Now, I don't do politics, especially not sitting here in this seat, but the outcry worldwide against that was ignored. And those photos came out, and we had the proof that we were doing this. The people involved denied responsibility until they were out of office, and then they acknowledged that that's the way they believed, that somehow applying physical pain and terror to human beings allows us to get information that then is helpful to us in pursuing our military ends, etc., etc. So all of the experts who testified said, in fact, research shows us that torture doesn't really work. What you get when you torture people is usually a tortured confession information that at a certain point, if you're really terrified, you'll say anything to get people to stop. So that's what you'd call wrong, harmful wisdom. It's ideas that um, don't work out, or there's, there's enough negativity. Okay, here is harmful wisdom, that the ends justify the means. There was a time when we were exploring atomic energy, especially for weapons, that the military, uh, I don't know, I haven't looked into all the details, but I know that there were experiments done with human subjects on nuclear testing. Um, It happened out in the desert, and there were people who were subjected to fallout from nuclear bombs, And then they were tested, and there was a time when people, there were prisoners who were fed 
radioactive isotopes to see what happened to them, and they died horribly. And it was covered up and denied, and it was a military secret for years and years. This is the kind of thing where you say, oh, well, we save lives in the end by sacrificing these folks for the better good. Another one is animal testing. Big, big, big controversy now, blazing as we speak about the benefits of testing on animals. Um, There's some very powerful research these days, and I know there are laboratory scientists here in the audience tonight, maybe some who are listening, who um, have perhaps tested with animals. UC Berkeley is a 10-minute walk from where we're sitting. Um, Controversial. And there's research now that says that animal testing is way more expensive and less helpful than uh, other kinds of testing that are now available, but we have got in the habit of testing on animals. So this is, I'll, I won't go into it tonight, but just to say that there are new voices that say uh, animal testing is, should never have been the, the standard uh, for developing of medicines, how much the less for cosmetics, for shampoos. And I won't, some of the experiments that have become standard are horrific and they, they, they're shocking. That's why many cosmetics these days say not animal tested. Cruelty free, they say. So that's only because people finally acknowledge that dropping shampoo into the eyes of rabbits to see if it burned was uh, cruel and not really helpful in developing shampoos. So that would be harmful wisdom. What about harmful desires? Harmful desires, pretty obvious. There's a list of five that we talk about. Wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. You think of... Uh, wealth, sex, and fame are certainly um, things that the marketplace tells us is the best. Celebrity is much celebrated. Wealth is one of the great motivators of the world. Attraction between men and women is certainly another. So desires are what make the world go round when they become harmful is when they lead to behavior that hurts in the pursuit of selfishness. The Buddhist formula was greed, anger, delusion. The idea being greed, substitute desire, leads us out looking for something. We want that thing. We want that person. We want that position. We want that title. We want that oil. And so do others. The desires push us into conflict. There's the anger. Unsatisfied desire leads to anger. The anger can lead us into war, into dishonesty, into killing our brother and sister, 
civil war. You all can fill in your stories, but that's the Buddha's principle is he called them the three poisons, greed, anger, and delusion. That's the problem with harmful desire is it pulls us out into the pursuit of satisfaction, that desire, leading to conflict, leading to pain, misery, which then brings us to suffering. It goes on to say, the thick forest of the evil destinies. What an image. Evil, destiny, dense forest. Four Chinese words. Okay, what in the world is the thick forest of the evil destinies? Um, if you've ever been lost in the woods, you get the idea. There's, um, this is a scene that's propelled hundreds of horror films, right? The Blair Witch Project, lost in the woods at night, in the dark, ooh, and the camera's bobbing around, and you lose your orientation, and you want to get nauseous trying to follow the camera. Um, getting lost in the woods is no fun. All the trees look alike. The path, which before was leading you towards pleasant afternoon and the sun-dappled leaves, suddenly disappears. North, south, east, west looks all the same. What if night falls and you're out there and you hear all these sounds and uh, you see pin, two pinpoints of light on the side? And, oh my, you're lost in the woods. Scary, right? Little Red Riding Hood. Think about... Uh, actually, she wasn't lost. She was going to Grandma's house. She knew where she was going. There's now a movie about that. Um, but think of all the uh, Grimm's fairy tales, Lost in the Woods. The image here is talking about the Dao, thick forest, dense forest. Dao are the evil destinies. And this brings into the sutra the Buddha's description of the, of the way the world is made. It's uh, um, Let me just point to it, and then we'll move on, because we've heard it a lot. The Buddha said there are ten places that people come back, that a soul, a spirit, comes back. Four of them are the sages' rebirths. Four of them are mm, already beyond birth and death. Buddhas, bodhisattvas, solitary Buddhas, and what are called sound hearers, shravakas voice hearers. Those are four places of birth that people can reach through cultivation. So we'll set those aside for the moment. Those are the four sages. They're already beyond samsara. Those are the four different levels of nirvana. But there are six that we're interested in particularly. And of those six, three are considered evil, painful, suffering, Three are considered wholesome, okay, not so bad. The, uh, let's start at the top and go down, or the six. The top is called the devas realms, the heavens. And there are levels and levels and levels of the heavens. And 
who else who also affirms these heaven destinies, the levels of the devas? Well, pretty much every theistic religion talks about them. The heavens are where God on high is. Um, you can think about your understanding of heaven. It's supposed to be clouds and angels and harps and St. Peter and a pearly gate. We have all those uh, descriptions and hmm, sounds pretty good. Those are the heavens and that's a rebirth that people can be born in. Next one down and there's a debate about which is higher, which is lower. Let's say the next one down is the humans. The one that is confused with is called Ashuras. A-S-H-U-R-A-S. Ashuras. And Ashuras are, what are they like? Um, if you've ever studied Edith Hamilton, Greek mythology, did you have any Greek mythology in high school or maybe in, in college? One of the stories in Greek mythology is about the gods and the titans. Titans are these big-bodied, sturdy, fearless warriors. They're always fighting with the gods for power on Mount Olympus. You all kind of remember that, right? T-I-T-A-N-S. It's not just a basketball team. The name of the basketball team came from the Titans in Greek mythology. And you think, oh, that's an interesting story. But then again, the Greeks talked about it as if it were really there. Hmm, interesting. It gets more interesting when you discover that the Asuras, A-S-U-R-A-S, were talked about not only by the Buddha, but also by the Hindus as being absolutely real. This is a rebirth, a destiny, it says. It's a path of rebirth. It's an incarnation that you can find yourself in, along with being a deva in the heavens or a human. It's still considered a wholesome destiny. And the hallmark of the Asuras is a love of fighting, conflict, a love of conflict just for the sake of testing strength. So Master Shenhua, who introduced this whole imagery to us, this whole story, said, Asuras include both robbers and cops. Both the cops and the robbers belong to the Asuras. Not always, but if you want to find Asuras, look at people who slip over the fence to climb into your bedroom while you're down in the den watching TV and steal your jewelry, right? Who pry their way within 30 seconds into the BMW in the parking lot and take off in the stolen car under the nose of the parking attendant. These are assurers. Who else? Generals. And what comes to mind is Rommel and... Montgomery, fighting in the desert to the death with tanks. Both of them, by the way, Scorpios, interestingly enough. We're not talking astrology, mind you, but, right? 
Rommel, the great German tank general, and Montgomery, the great British tank general, fighting to the death tank warfare in the deserts of North Africa. To assure us, for sure. Okay, Patton, Eisenhower. Assure us doesn't mean bad right away. It does mean really ready to go to war, to test strength. Great athletes can be assurers, people who love to get out and crunch. I'm going to see if I can knock you over. Oh, I could. Well, yeah, I'll help you back up. Or I knock you over again. There's positive and negative assurers. It's that will to test strength. The asuras in the Buddhist cosmology are constantly fighting with the gods for power in the heavens. And our very sutra, our Avatamsaka Sutra, has a chapter called Shen Shoupin, the worthy leader chapter, where it talks about the conflict between the gods and the titans, the devas and the asuras. Very similar to Edith Hamilton with the Titans and the Gods on Mount Olympus. Fascinating how there's this crossover about these beings called Asuras. Now, are they like, does somebody walk in and flash their Asura badge or their ID? Well, probably not, but you could say some people are born Asuras. Sometimes I can find myself behaving like an Asura. So Asura-ness is maybe more a state of mind than it is a birth. Can Asuras be crossed over? I actually haven't heard that. Apparently Asuras struggle a lot. And they say, interestingly enough, Master Hua would give us details, male Asuras are really ugly. Female Asuras are really beautiful, (laughs) said Master Hua. And, uh, okay, all right, so... Any faces come to mind? No, we can't do that. No. Um, so, that's another one of the destinies. Then comes humans. So we have devas, asuras, and humans. Maybe humans are above asuras, maybe not. Humans, says Master Hua, is the best of these six destinies, six rebirth places on the turning wheel of Incarnation of samsara. And what is human rebirth like? It's pleasure and pain mixed up in equal measure. Sometimes more of one, sometimes less. Why is it a good place to be reborn? Because from the human, from rebirth in a human body, you can hear the Dharma and cultivate. So what about the other two, the devas and the asuras? Fascinating to hear the Chan master, our teacher, say, the heavens are really nice. Don't go there. Life in the heavens is really blessed and blissful. Avoid it. Why? Isn't that what we're looking for, is as much gusto and pleasure as we can grab? The problem with the, the heaven realm, said Master Xinhua, is that it's still within mortality. It's still within birth and death, 
you're born there, everything is copacetic and wonderful, you forget to cultivate, you spend your blessings, and you leave. Come back. Human, shura, maybe worse. That's why. Because it's equally impermanent. It's kind of like a permanent vacation on Singapore Airlines flying to Bali. Right? At first class. And it's just so nice, you kind of forget that Los Angeles still exists. Right? You forget that those tsunamis still bear down on the village and make it vanish. 11,000 people still unfound in Japan. Right? No matter how nice Bali is, there's other places. You forget that, and you think that it's all heavenly, which, when you're in the heavens, is. And then it's over and you're back. So, humans, not that the, the heavens are bad, it's that it's harder to cultivate in the heavens because you forget. In the human realm, we have a body that can actually is very suitable for meditation, for cultivation, for benefiting others, for helping, for correcting our mind towards proper views, away from harmful, selfish views. So that's why the, the human realm, says Master Hua, is the best place to be. It's like an airport with planes leaving for everywhere from every gate in the human realm. So, devas, asuras, and humans, three wholesome realms, three good destinies. Then we cross a line, and we get to our sutra passage, the dense forest of of the unwholesome painful, suffering destinies, the yin, dark side of samsara. What? Animals, ghosts, and hells. Three evil destinies. Now, again, the Buddha, by saying this, is not shaking his finger in our face and saying, "Ah, bad being, you go to the hells. You're an animal. Poof. Not like that. The Buddha is saying, take a look. If you go out and look at the moon, you'll notice, let's say tonight, it's a crescent. It's waning gibbous. If you look at the moon, nine times out of ten, you're drawn only to the bright part. If you unfocus your eyes as you're looking at the moon, you'll see, hey, you know what? The whole moon is visible all the time. But we go for the bright part. Unfocus your eyes and you'll notice that if it's a crescent moon, either waxing or waning, if you look, you can see the dark part. There's a thin corona, a thin layer of sun's light on the moon on the dark part, that you can see all the time, but we're usually not doing that. The Buddha looks at the evil destinies in the same way. He's saying, we don't like to look at the other part. How many of you, looking at this chrysanthemum, see the green part below the blossom? None, right? You don't look at that part, you look at that part. That's a white chrysanthemum. There is no white chrysanthemum without... 
that part. How much the less do we notice the stem? If it's roses, we don't see the thorns. We don't say, those are really nice thorns on that rose. Look, dude, first class. We don't. We say, oh, red rose, white rose, right? There's no rose without thorns. There's no heavens, humans, and shuras without animals, ghosts, and hells. The Buddha looks squarely at them. He doesn't have selective preferential vision. The Buddha says, yeah. You know what? The hells are stoked full tonight, this minute. The animal's realm is not the way Disney gives it to us. It's a lot of suffering. Bambi, Bambi, we didn't see her shot in the film. They didn't include that footage, right? They cut that. Bambi gets shot by some Wisconsin hunter. You know, no, no. But deer's lives are try to, Bambi crosses the highway. Oh, no, boom, ooh, right? Bambi wiped out by a motorcycle. Not, okay. That stuff is really the, the, the life of animals. How many billions and billions killed for food every year? We're going to hear more about that later on. Robert's going to come and testify. Well, not yet, not yet. So uh, the life of an animal is not the way cartoons would have us believe. The life of a ghost, this is hot button, especially in the Chinese-Vietnamese community. Ho, ho. Let's talk about ghosts. Let's not. Right? Oh, my. Um, Honest, growing up as a Methodist in Toledo, Ohio, ghosts for me were Casper. Casper the friendly ghost. He was, how does it go? Casper the friendly ghost, the friendliest ghost you know. Though grown-ups might run from him in fright, the children all love him so. Right? Okay, we love our ghosts. That was it. There was maybe a haunted house in your neighborhood, maybe not. Ghosts were nothing we took seriously. When I stepped into Chinese culture, I realized how much ghosts play a big part in people's consciousness. There is zhou gui. There is hei gui. There is cai gui, right? Si gui, etc. All kinds of ghosts make it into the vocabulary. People really believe, truly believe, that one night every year is the night, or actually it's a week or month, ghost month. And there's a month when ghosts come out, and you don't want to get married in that month, right? Not a good idea. There's all kinds of culture. Who's laughing? Who's right? This is true. So uh, I had to learn a lot about ghosts. Now you think, ha, ha, how quaint. Well, Chinese civilization has been watching humanity and the world around it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And they've been writing about it all those years. Literature that you read today, current, was written 3,000 years ago, Book of Songs, etc. So maybe the Chinese have been watching longer than we have and talk from experience about ghosts. Who knows? Anyway, the realm of animals, ghosts, and the hells, which the Buddha described in great detail, are things that we meet in the Dharma 
with eyes wide open, just like looking at the moon, refocusing your eyes and realize that you've been seeing that shadow all along, but selectively we go to the light, right? The Buddha says, actually, it's more helpful when you wake up aware to see the whole moon. Take a look. The whole moon is there, always, right? There's heavens, humans, asuras, ghosts, animals, and the hells all the time. Just like the dark side of the moon, never missing, never not there. We prefer to look at one. All of it is there all the time. Buddha says, once you lose your human body and wind up among the animals, the ghosts, and in the hells, it's like losing your way in a forest. It's hard to find your way back to the safety of home with the light on, with a cup of hot cocoa, with a fire in the fireplace, and security wrapped in a blanket in your rocking chair in front of your favorite soap opera. That's very far from you. It's hard to get back to that place of comfort. So, he says, living beings are sad. Because, first of all, we deny that we're responsible for what happens to us. Second of all, we hear things that are harmful and we believe them. Third, what else? We uh, have desires that pull us out, that the marketplace encourages us. We need that thing. we got to get that or else we're not whole and complete. And as a result, we wind up in places that are hard to come back from just like getting lost, the Blair Witch Project, getting lost in the forest and not being able to get out. He says, sad, says the Buddha. It's sad. It's pitiable. It's pathetic that living beings are there. And then, having given us this lens, this view of living beings, of us, where we are, the Buddha says, wo ying ling bi, I should bring them the right way of seeing so they stay in those views and the last four words practice, walk the true, real path so that they walk straight they walk the right road what would be the right road? The right road would be towards humanity, towards getting a human body, cultivating in that human body, heading for Buddhahood, awakening, compassion, wisdom, ultimately the Bodhisattva path where they benefit others. That would be the true and proper path. Okay, what about all that? Man, that's a whole lot of stuff. Talking about the, the cosmology where people are reborn, where we come back. The talking about um, wrong views, cause and effect, the notion that somehow we're not responsible, um, wrong wisdom, believing in things the way they're not, harmful things, wrong desires, evil destinies, dense forest, on and on. What do you think? Honey. Where does insincerity? Yeah. 
Okay, in, in speech, you say, or in all things? Okay, so the question, correct me if I get it wrong. Her question was, where does insincerity come um, in doing things that are not true in body, speech, and mind? Where would that fall? Okay, um, here's the way a classic, a classic description of a cultivator is somebody who is always looking for the answer to that question. A cultivator would say, was that true? Asking yourself. If you hear somebody else say something that rings not quite true, you're never really going to know whether they meant it or not. But the one place where you can guarantee is your own mind. So a cultivator would say, what's my motive? Always. And that's the, the Chinese phrase is hui guang fan zhao, reflect within. So to answer your question, I've got to give you a question back, which is ask yourself, where were you, right? And there's no one answer because you can be sincere in this word and then insincere in the next one, right? It's an ongoing process. So you have to constantly ask yourself, was that true? Was it real? If the answer is yes, go full speed ahead. Don't hesitate. If the answer is no, then let that one go because there's going to be another thought right behind it and try to true that thought. Okay? Think of true like a verb, right? Or sincere, to sincere your mind. It's a really good question, you know. I'm always asking myself, how sincere was I? Was that phony? Because that's a word that I deal with all the time. Was I phony? Or was I sincere? And if, I was, if the answer was phony, then I chuck that thought. You ever, do you make compost? Are you a gardener? Okay. So compost. What's compost? Compost is garbage that you recycle that makes fertilizer. Compost is fertilizer. So if you've got, you cut the grass, let's say, you have lawns in California? You don't have lawns in California. By golly, if this was anywhere east of the Mississippi, I could use this image, but I can't do it in California. We grow native plants in California. So you cut the grass, and you take all the grass clippings or the leaves. You take the potato peelings, not citrus and not meat. You take table scraps, leaves, grass, organic garbage, coffee grounds, paper that will dissolve, chuck it in the compost heap, right? Then you layer it on, you add a little bit of water, make it moist, a little bit of lime, and let it sit. Two weeks later, three weeks later, you go in with a spading fork, a big pitchfork, turn it over, and let it sit. And then you come back in four weeks, and you have this wonderful, sweet-smelling, totally nutritious, proper pH balance fertilizer, compost, okay? Compost is diamonds from garbage. Okay, what do you do? I'm back to your question, Connie. What do you do when you find an insincere thought in your mind? Because the answer might be, yeah, that was a phony smile, (laughs) right? That's just, it looks so nice on you. Mm. right when you know that you had the same blouse and you 
discarded it because you thought it looked terrible. So you pl- plaster a phony smile on, and you say, that's really phony. So what do you do? Do you beat yourself up? Do you hate yourself? Do you, you know, just stop talking? None of the above. What you do is you say, oh, that's a ringer. That's a loser. Compost it. Chuck that motive, which was what? To why did you give that phony compliment to somebody? Because you wanted to score on them? Because you wanted to them to like you so they could you could they would vote for you? What's desire and attachments for sure. There's a sense of getting benefit from that, so you tell a lie. It's it's a phony compliment. So you say, okay, that wasn't real. Chuck it in the compost pile, let it ferment, and up comes something truer next time. Okay? Yeah, yeah. You say, no, that's not real. But my mind can produce sincere thoughts. That wasn't one of them. And you pull it back and put it in the compost pile and let it become wholesome fertilizer. Behind that, that response that I gave is the idea that the mind can produce both true things and false things. The Buddha described the mind as full of greed, anger, and delusion, but also precepts, samadhi, and wisdom. Where is Buddhahood going to come from if not from that recycled, insincere, phony thought? You just bring it back and realize that the mind produces Buddhas as well as phony faces. So, that's, does that make sense? So, the key, the first step is check your motive. Hui Guang, check. Oh, no, that was off. I wanted something out of that. That was not real. I was covering so that somebody will like me more. That was always my motive. Pretending that I came from Canada instead of from Toledo. Oui, bien sûr. Just like my father. I go to Canada every two years in the summer for a week. You know, Never mind, I am from Quebec. I must be more <laughs> interesting. Right? Oui? No, phony. Right? Toledo, man. Yeah. Okay, nothing wrong with Toledo. I mean, some people's got to come from Toledo, right? Toledo produces really good glass. Hmm, glass capital of the world. It was indeed. Not anymore. Toledo, sad Toledo. When I was growing up, Toledo had eight or nine Fortune 500 companies, including Libby Owens Corning, Owens Corning, Libby Owens Ford, glass. All, the glass in your car up until a certain point was all made in Toledo. Shipped more coal than any other city in Midwest was a major rail hub is on the St. Lawrence Seaway. That's where ships come through to Lake Erie and on. How many Fortune 500 companies are left in Toledo? All gone. Toledo is in a major, major economic tailspin. So, like Dayton, like Cleveland, like Akron, and so forth. So, hopefully we can reinvent ourselves. 
So the Bodhisattva says, I should find a way to empower living beings. And he's probably thinking mom, probably thinking son and daughter, in-laws, nieces, nephews, friends. I should encourage them, inspire them to see things the way they are. Because if they do, their lives get better immediately. Any more questions about this? This is so rich. This stuff is so thick and powerful. Okay. Okay, what is the meaning of cultivate, often used, not defined? Um, that's our power verb. That's our key, that's our... our uh, it's definitely Buddhist jargon. That's lingo, right? That's what he means, not defined. Cultivate here comes from... It's an analogy from gardening. You think of cultivate your garden. Uh, you get a hoe... You get a shovel, you go out, you turn the piece of ground that was hard, had broken glass, beer cans, dried grass. You dump the garbage, pull down the dried grass, and break up the hard pan. You add what are called amendments, like compost. You take the compost out of the heap, it's ready, put it in there, soften it up. Break the big chunks of earth into small chunks of earth. Break the small chunks of earth into what's called loam, tilth, really good soil. You water it, you go down deep, you might do what's called double digging, right? You pull away the top layer, dig out the bottom layer, drop the top layer in, and then drop the second layer. So you have really nice soil. Find some good seeds, put them in there just the right depth, just the right distance apart. Add water. Put a fence around it to keep the dogs and the kids and the cats off it, right? The deer anymore. And watch. What comes up? Weeds, first of all. Pull the weeds out. Compost them. Add more compost, more water. Let the sun do its thing. Up comes these wonderful sprouts. Cultivation. That's the idea. So it works by analogy because the Buddha described the mind, our mind, as a garden, capable of being phony, giving insincere compliments, and also capable of incredible compassion, incredible goodness, sincerity, wisdom. The mind, the, the mind ground, shindi, this is the, the analogy, right? talking about the mind as a garden, is capable of producing ultimate goodness. That's our capacity. That's our potential. And the difference is, do you cultivate or not? Someone who works in their mind ground checks out their motive. Why did I say that? How could I have said that? Or, if you're sure and positive that your motive is true, you go strongly forward, courageous, no doubt. You create, you plant good seeds in the mind ground, in the ground of the mind. That's cultivation. 
Okay? We use it as a verb meaning to, to practice spiritual, to, to walk a spiritual path, to pay attention to what's going on inside. Okay? Good? Once again, Kenny? Uh, don't we not cultivate consciously or not? Nope. Do potatoes grow themselves? His question was, don't we all cultivate consciously or not? Right. Um, in what world do you live? <laughs> Ideally, yeah. I don't think that happens. I think a lot of people... We live in a world where mm, national leaders can behave very selfishly. Um, Why does America find it proper and just to devote so much wealth to stockpiling weapons that our military arsenal is larger than all the other countries combined? Hello? Meanwhile, uh, Governor Brown grudgingly, unhappily appro- approved $11 billion of budget cuts yesterday. California, you want to go to a state park? Chain across the gate. Right? How about the town, what was our town in North Bay, that said after 9 o'clock, don't call the police? There aren't any. Try again tomorrow. Why? No budget. No money. Where's the money? Oh, we have something like 10,000 warheads, nuclear warheads, any one of which can blow up Philadelphia or Sacramento. 10,000? Why? Oh, we're going to be tough on terror. That's terrifying. Man, you're the one who scares me. You know, get re- that's... That's not cultivation, or it's cultivation of something I don't recognize as humane. That's a great mystery to me, why America, our nation, remember Michael Moore? Bowling for Columbine. What a wonderful landmark film. I know many people don't like Michael Moore. Michael Moore makes wonderful, thought-provoking films. He crosses from Detroit to Windsor, Ontario, It was across the bridge from America to Canada, Windsor, Ontario. He walks unannounced into somebody's house, doesn't knock on the door. Hello, excuse me. Yes, well, yes, who are you? I'm Michael Moore. I'm a filmmaker. Oh, oh, please come in. Could I offer you a cup of tea? You know, he says, I'd like to ask you, says Michael Moore, do you have any guns? Well, yes, we do. We have some guns. They're under lock and key. He said, "Uh, okay. When was the last time you heard of somebody being shot? I can't recall when that happened. Oh, thank you very much. You have guns, but you don't use them on people. Yes, that's right. I don't think anyone does. Thank you very much. That's nice. Come back for the cup of tea anytime, says the person. Michael Moore goes to the Windsor, Ontario Police Department. He says, uh, uh, Sergeant Lafette, he says, tell me, when was the last time you had a gun murder? Death by firearm. And the police chief goes, Oh, let's see, y'all. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, I think there was one uh, four or five years ago. Of course, that was an American who came across the bridge. <laughs> right? Okay, Michael Moore says, thank you very much. Turns out that you crossed the bridge. They're within sight of each other. You cross the Detroit River from Detroit to Windsor, and it's a very different culture. In Canada, people don't use guns on each other. In America, we do. 45,000 handgun deaths every year in this country. That's funny, huh? Well, maybe it's because we live in a world of weapons, so we use them on each other. So that's what I would call not cultivating. Or it's cultivating a... That would be what? Harmful wisdom. The idea that somehow we're safer because we stockpile things that are only there to kill human beings. That's very strange. You know, the rest of the world laughs at us because Americans live in an armed camp. And yet we will deny ourselves health care when things go wrong with our bodies as if they don't go wrong with our bodies while we stockpile ordnance. That's the name for it. High explosive. Okay, so you get the point. That's not cultivating. It's cultivating, but it's cultivating an Ashura-like path, perhaps? I don't know. It's uh, certainly not for the well-being of the many. Strange. Let me think about it. Kenny, how am I doing? Uh, you have to say it one more time. All right, okay, I get it. So the person is saying, indeed, not choosing is choosing. That's his point. He says we're cultivating whether we know it or not. If you don't cultivate your garden, what happens? Weeds. You ever grow anything? Weeds, right? You have to actually pull the weeds, not because you hate weeds, but you're composting them. You bring them back as fertilizer. You bring them around again, and you choose. You have to say, okay, I prefer the green beans and the carrots to the weeds, so I'll move the weeds to the compost pile and grow the carrots. That's cultivating. If you don't cultivate by weeding, you still have weeds. That's true. That's a point. However, there is cultivating according to the Dharma, which is the Buddhist teaching, and there's not cultivating, which is indeed to let your mind be covered over by the dense forest of wrong views. Okay? All right? I think that might be the answer. By golly. If you'll notice, we're on page 21. What's coming next? He further makes the following reflection. Turn over. He further makes the following reflection. Change the pronoun. She further makes the following reflection. She further makes the following reflection. And, down at the bottom of 23, she further makes the following reflection. Turn over to 25. We have two more following reflections. What's going on here? This is the Ten Grounds chapter. And... The sutra is taking us into the mind of the bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is reflecting, right? What, when my answer to Connie's question, what you do if you're cultivating, we use that word, if you're cultivating the way the bodhisattva does, 
You check out your motive. I just had a thought. Let me look at that. Let me look at it. What's the idea? The idea is, if that thought is true, good, proper, big, selfless, let it take root and grow. If that thought is small, false, crooked, selfish, harmful, pull it up. Sweep it away. That's cultivation. Weed it. Compost that thought. Don't let it grow. That's the way Master Shrinhua taught cultivation. He said, prune your thoughts. Weed your mind. Okay? What is it? It's interactive. The view this gives us of our thoughts is like waves on the water. They're coming. Are you going to grab every wave and ride it to the beach if you're a surfer? No. Some aren't going to carry you there. Some are too big. Okay? Question? So, Angie, you said, what about diplomacy at the workplace? What? Ah. Got it. Okay, I saw somebody else's eyes light up when you asked that question, because we've had that question. Right. 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 Question was, what about diplomacy on the job? Meaning, um, tactical speech, uh, what do you say? Skillful speech. If you tell the truth, you could lose your job. What about that? Right? Okay. So, um, the question is, what do you want? If you want to make your mind absolutely, your body, mouth, and mind absolutely pure, not a speck of what the, the sutra just described as the ten evil deeds, not a bit, then tell the truth. Watch your boss's face turn red. Watch him walk directly to human resources and cancel your contract. Tell the truth. You can predict the results, which will be you'll no longer work for the company. Your colleagues might applaud. They might cheer you, but you're probably going to be cleaning out your desk before the morning's up, right? So is that what you want? The problem is you're in a situation where there's self-benefit, which is what? Salary, income, a job. You're also in a community where (coughs) people are working for a goal, which by and large would be the bottom line. Okay, maybe it's a project, maybe it could be um, in a hospital. You're all getting along. You have 
egotistical, face-invested superiors. Every situation I've ever been in, including monasteries, has office politics. Office politics is hard to avoid when you have two people, three people, right? You, could, you don't have to do it at the office. Talk about your breakfast table with your spouse. You know where the buttons are, okay? The, you're the person sitting across from you at breakfast. You could push those buttons any minute if you say those words. So the answer would be from the point of cultivation is, what do you want? You have choices, If you choose to speak truthfully, there are consequences. If you choose to speak tactfully, skillfully, telling half the truth, there are consequences. The Buddha's answer would be, choose wisely. Right? Every word you say is planting seeds. Not just the half-truths to kind of slide by, to butter up the ego, to avoid pushing that button you're pushing another button. So choose wisely. Um, If you are in a place where you know what not to say, that's a choice. That's a skillful choice. In general, Master Shrenhua gave us the answer in his six guidelines. He said, given the circumstance where your boss is clearly doing something you totally disagree with, and you have the opportunity to give your opinion, immediately check out, make the following reflection based on six guidelines. He said, is your motive full of fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, personal advantage, or dishonesty? If it is, he would say, then pursuing that word, thought, and deed is going to plant a seed that will increase affliction. It may be good at the time, it's going to trip you up later. So pause, he would say. Pull up that weed or just wait. Suppose you don't say anything. Suppose you don't say the half-truth, but you also don't tell the full truth. You have a choice. Being in the choice and asking yourself is the cultivator's point of view. If the situation arises, you say, the words that I say now are not fighting. In fact, they're in harmony. They are yielding. They're not Ashura-like thoughts. They're not greedy. This comes from my true heart. They're not seeking. I'm fully convinced that these words have principle. They're not selfish or after personal advantage. It's not for me and mine that I'm saying these things. And they're fundamentally true. Although anything true in another context can be false. So you'd ask yourself, is there no fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, benefit, and dishonesty? Say what you want to say. Speak your heart fearlessly. Okay? That's how he would answer that question. He would say, everything you say is a choice. So choose wisely. Choose skillfully. And often, the skillful choice is the one that hurts less. 
you can be true as the sunrise and shed blood with your words. Right? Is that a skillful thing to say? If you don't care how many broken hearts you leave behind you, how many, you know, crushed hopes and desires you left behind you. You were true. I told you the truth. I never tell anything, never say anything false, right? Your words come out like, like a sword. You know, they come out like a hammer pounding people over the head. Well, that's a choice again. It wasn't skillful. So, choose wisely and often the harmless choice is the one that was the best choice. Sometimes you just don't know what were the results of what you said until time passes. Right? So, try your best. You know, And those six guidelines give you a really good yardstick to measure um, before you say it, do it, or think it. Fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, personal advantage, and lying. Master Hua says, plant seeds, but they often bring affliction in the end. Some people never, never compromise. And you admire them, and they're often covered with bandages, right? It's just because of the, they're always winding up hurting people with their words. So it's a choice you make. And to be able to choose means that your mind is alive and awake. You're noticing what you're saying. You're watching your motives. That's a good thing. Try silence next time. Sometimes just not saying it is louder than the words you could say. Often, you know, practicing what you preach gets the message across better than the words you could have used. Okay. Great. Now, um, I didn't get to anything that I wanted to talk about tonight, by golly. How about that? I was going to go on. I was all prepared for the next passage, and we didn't get there. Uh, That means we'll get there next week. Um, The next passage is about fighting. All beings make distinctions between self and others and destroy each other. Fighting and enmity rage without cease. I should teach him to dwell in kindness, he says. I had all these great stories prepared for not fighting and uh, not seeking vengeance and stuff. So that's just a teaser to make sure you come back next week for the great lecture. Okay? Tune in next time for stories of not fighting. Hallelujah. Okay, by golly. Well, we have a lot to talk about, so let's transfer the merit and stop here. See you next week for more of the Bodhisattva's following reflections. If you have a songbook in front of you, you can find the dedication of merit on the back page.
dedication of merit is an opportunity to extend your wholesome mind to benefit others. Please make a wish and send out that goodness. Yeah. 